Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. I'm Benjamin Red, and uh, Nizar Hassan is gone this week. He's traveling, but I'm super excited because my friend Jeremy Arbid is here. Jeremy is the economics and policy editor at Executive Magazine. He's also one of the co-founders of the Lebanese Oil and Gas Initiative, uh, an NGO. And so super excited to have you here this week. Yeah, it's great to be here. I'm excited too. The weather is beautiful outside and we're going to talk about economy, all the news last week and real estate, the subsidy. Yeah, like you may not think that real estate is the sexiest of subjects, but you know, like real estate is what caused like the 2007-2008 financial crisis in the West, right? In, in yep. the US. In the United States. Uh, yeah. So it, it can have really big consequences. Uh, and, and what we're seeing here in Lebanon could be problematic uh, at, at some point in the future. And so we're going to dive into that uh, a little bit later. First off, though, uh, the news of the week. Um, this week, of course, the STL Ooh. wrapped up. We, we we went like deep dive into this last, last week. week yeah. Um, but yeah, so everything wrapped up as we thought uh, on Friday, the, the the final defense team wrapped up. And, and so everything's done. And now we're mm -hmm. just waiting uh, for the verdicts. People think it's going to be in 2019 or something like okay. that. It, it just depends on how long the judges need to go over all of the evidence and all, all of the arguments and come to a conclusion. Right. right. Yeah. Also this week, we, we had a fun event down in Dahye, uh, the municipality of, of Robeiri, which is uh, one of the municipalities in, in the southern suburbs, decided to name one of their streets after Mustafa Badruddin, who is okay. one of the original defendants at the STL, yeah. uh, accused of uh, killing Hariri. And also he was like one of the top uh, commanders uh, in Hezbollah uh, yeah. in, in Syria and everything. And he died in Syria a few years back. And so, and so the municipality thought, okay, well, let's name a street after the martyr. It's quite uh, interesting timing, though, wouldn't you say? Right. Right when the SDL is wrapping up and everything, yeah. I, I find the timing on this very interesting as well. So what happened? They, they decided to name the street, but how did that, how did that work? Well, there's different stories, right? Okay. So, uh, I mean, the interior minister, uh, Nohan Mashnouk, uh, yeah. who was with the Future Movement, of course, said, I never I never okayed anything. Uh, this is wrong, it, against the rules or whatever. But then right. the municipality came back and said, well, actually, you didn't need to okay it. We submitted it. You didn't respond to us. And so, according to the law, we can now just go ahead and name it uh, okay. what we want. And so, yeah, I'm, it, it's sort of like up in the air as to because it seems to yeah. me like there has to be some way for the interior ministry to, you know, get what it, it, it wants done because uh, the municipalities are sort of under. Uh, right. So yeah. you think it was a blunder on Meshnu's part or? I have no idea. I have no idea. It was very interesting sectarian overtones. I mean, it sounds totally reasonable that a municipality might send one of these requests to the interior ministry and then it just gets lost in the paperwork oh, and yeah. nobody ever. I, I mean, it, it sounds totally reasonable. So it, I don't know. That happens a lot, yeah. But yeah, I mean, like Hariri, obviously, he was not happy about this. He came out and like, called it like the mother of all strifes and everything, you know, it. it that sim that symbology of doing it this week, uh, you know that that's definitely important. The timing of it, and it does have that sectarian undertone to it, doesn't it? Oh yeah, yeah, for sure, for sure. Okay. Uh, the the name of the street uh, has been placed on the sign already, or it's not gone up yet, or where? No, we have pictures of it, so okay. we know like it's actually there. You, you can oh, go down okay. and you can see. In the Arabic, they actually call That's it like Ashahid, you know, the martyr, uh, Mustafa Badruddin. Because uh, finding street. street names in Lebanon is quite difficult, I've found. So it's it's nice to <laughs> They've maybe, actually got maybe one marked. Have, maybe, 
uh, yeah, despite okay. the sectarian uh, yeah. implications of this, maybe this is a step in the right direction, right? Uh, <laughs> we also had, uh, we have an ambassador from Saudi. Uh, oh, the now. new Saudi ambassador, okay. Yeah, who's not really new, yeah. right? <laughs> Walid al-Bukhari, who has been, he's like an old hand in Lebanon. Uh, he was, he's been sort of like the head of the mission uh, when the old ambassador left in August 2016, okay. he took over sort of like day-to-day things. And then we had a new ambassador who was appointed in, I think, September of 2017, presented his credentials in January 2018, but then left in March of 2018. Okay. Uh, and so and so he's been taking care of, like, uh, Bukhari's been there, ex- with the exception of this, like, uh, several months period uh, where Walid al-Ya'oub has been the guy Bukhari's already been doing all the work of the embassy. He was the charge de fer, what you would call. exactly. The day-to-day manager of the embassy, and now he's been appointed, but he still has to present credentials, right? right? right. Like Like the whole formality of it has to be. He's not the ambassador yet, Uh, uh, but that will happen, uh, I'm sure, relatively soon. But this is important, though, because so that guy that we spoke about, uh, who is the ambassador just for a few months, right? What happened? well, he was seen to be, uh, uh, if you remember Temur Sabhan, huh. that guy, the Minister of State uh, for Gulf Affairs, the Saudi uh, minister. He had the Lebanon file when all of these things happened, <laughs> let's mm. say. So Sabhan was the was in charge of the Lebanon file for Saudi during uh, the, that whole thing that happened last November with Hariri when what? he was. Uh, oh, yeah, yeah. Yeah. What happened last November? He resigned and then. Didn't resign. I'm still, right. I, I don't yeah. know. Yeah, I, I mean, it's it's come out since then uh, that apparently he was arrested and, and the, the Saudis just held him for like a month uh, before he came back or, or a few weeks before he came back uh, and then unresigned. Uh, so he resigned, I think, on like November 5th and then unresigned, took it back on like December 4th, something like that. And that was part of the whole anti-corruption campaign that the Saudis were undertaking. Right. They They say it's an anti-corruption campaign, right? Um, activists have cast doubt on that, whether it was an anti-corruption campaign or whether it was sort of like a, a power play by Mohammed bin Salman, the, the deputy crown, uh, or sorry, the, the crown prince now. But regardless, th- this was seen as sort of a, a failure of the policy, uh, of the Lebanon policy, uh, not being able, d- you know, d- doing this thing that is just crazy outside the bounds to begin with, you know, uh, whoever the advisor to Mohammed bin Salman was who recommended that clearly should have been reassigned, right? Because that was an insane, uh, that was insane counsel to give, uh, you know, your your ruler. So he was, uh, and this is how things have been interpreted, you know, uh, what we've seen in the media, what we've seen come out, who knows, you know, what actually happened in the palace or whatever. But the way it's seen is that Sabhan was sort of like the hawk on this. He counseled this, it backfired, and then he was removed from the Lebanon file. And so what we see now with uh, Bukhari being made like the permanent ambassador is, okay, well, number one, we already had supposedly Sabhan's man, was gone and Bukhari came in to take his place. But now this has been made, this sort of like policy reversal has been made a little bit more permanent. Um, and so maybe we'll see, I mean, we don't, we don't know where this is going to go from here, but it's a signal that maybe Saudi policy on Lebanon is more fully reverting to a, a, a more traditional stance. Okay, so with the STL having a ruling sometime in the future, maybe early 2019, with the new appointment of the Saudi ambassador to Lebanon, do you think these have sort of 
plays for government formation? Is it any sort of indicator that we can see in government government formation now? Well, I mean, I'm I'm still because this is your favorite I, subject, I, yeah, right? Yeah, no, and I'm still optimistic on this. But like this week, we didn't see anything, right? Like mm. there was there was really nothing. The French ambassador came out and called for government formation, saying, "Oh, you need to do all of these reforms and everything and in order to do that." Uh, you you need a government, but there wasn't really much movement at all this this past week, and the, this coming week there isn't going to be much at all as well because President Aoun is at, in New York at the General Assembly. Oh, at the United Nations. Yeah, exactly, okay. exactly. So I wouldn't expect anything in the super near term, but like you know, not this week, but you know, sometime soon we we could see things because we are starting to see an intensification of the calls to form a government for explicitly economic reasons. This week, we also had uh, 427 Syrian refugees that returned to the country, and that was on Monday. And that, I believe, was on the initiative of Hezbollah, right? Or was no. that organized by a different... The, the, these are the general security returns. So Hezbollah is doing this other thing where like, they're giving names to general security and they're taking a, b- a much more active role in the r- return issue. They also gave another list of names. We don't know how many to general security this week. So there is like, we keep seeing like these small things every week. There's something on this, uh, something new, some, you know, a few hundred returns. I mean, it's still sort of a drop in the bucket, but uh, it's continuing. And, and at some point in the future, we may see that escalate. And there's supposed to be the appointment of some Lebanon Russian committee to also coordinate. So there's several different bodies that are having a stake in returns. Is that correct? Right, right. Exactly. Exactly. We okay. also had a, a really big uh, security incident happen down in Halwe, the largest Palestinian refugee camp in the country. Uh, it's, you know, upwards of 100,000 people live in this tiny, like they're packed into this tiny camp. Uh, a man by the name of Haisam Saadi uh, was shot several times uh, reportedly uh, uh, last Sunday. So not not this Sunday, but a week ago Sunday. And he's reportedly like from a relatively prominent family that is allied with Fatah. And his killer is reportedly allied with um, like uh, Islamist groups. Um, and specifically, this happened right next to the Safsaf neighborhood, uh, which is uh, where uh, Osmat al-Ansar is very prominent uh, and very powerful. Um, and so right now, a man has been accused, uh, Mohammed al-Arqub, has been accused of the killing and he's believed to be, as I said, affiliated with Islamist groups, but nobody's giving him up. His, his father's come out and said, well, I'm not going to give up my son. I, I mean, obviously, right? Uh, but on the other side of this, we have protests, we have schools shutting down, UNRWA stopped garbage collection. And so there was garbage literally piling up in the streets. And, and there was, and, and I, I believe this is uh, uh, continuing. We're, we're recording this, by the way, on Saturday. Uh, and so the, the latest that I've heard was Friday. There was another sit-in, another protest. And so this seems to be continuing. And adding to this, the Saadi family, the family of the victim, they said, we're not going to bury the body until justice is served, uh, which is a really, really big deal, right? Like under Islamic law, the body must be buried as quickly as possible. I mean, there are exceptions for cases like this where there's like an investigation or something. But it seems like the the family is coming out and making a a very pointed statement about this saying, no, we're going to delay this until you guys give up uh, the killer and and we're able to get some justice. So this has the potential to continue on. Um, and I'm not. I'm not sure the. the I'm. I'm not sure what the uh, state of like 
garbage collection is right now. I, I don't know if that's restarted or not. I don't. I don't know if the schools have have reopened or not. But, but is, is that connected to UNRWA funding, or is that because of the unrest now? Because because of the, of the unrest, okay. right? I mean, yeah. the the funding issue is another really big issue, but it's a separate one. Okay. Right now, schools have enough money in Lebanon. UNRWA schools have enough money to last till the end of the month. So funding is an issue, but but yeah. the, it's a separate issue with, with this. So this, this is another thing. I mean, Ayn al-Halwe is, you know, you, you you read a lot of really unfortunate stories like this that come out of Ayn al-Halwe. Um, it's, it's one of those cases where like there, there's a, there's a lack of any sort of like real good governance. Um, and, and there's always, there's power struggles. The Lebanese government doesn't interfere. Right. So it's, uh, Palestinian authorities there. Um, but really they're, you know, the Palestinians in these camps, they're in like no win situations, right? <laughs> like, uh, it, it's very hard, uh, to be a Palestinian refugee in Lebanon to begin with. And then being in this camp as well, it it can be very difficult. Really quickly, I I wanted to note this because I know we're both interested in this. Lebanon has this right to access information law. It's uh, what we call the FOIA in the U.S., Freedom of Information Act. Uh, But here it's called right to access information. And so you can do the same thing. You can file uh, a request uh, from any state institution and they're supposed to get back to you within, you know, like a set time period. And I have never had it work for me. <laughs> oh, really? I've had positive, but I've also had more, probably more negative yeah. experiences with it. But uh, there's several issues with the law, including having really no recourse if uh, you make a request and it gets denied or ignored for whatever reason. Um, there's supposed to be, I think it, it kind of translates as the Anti-Corruption Commission, the body yeah. that you would appeal to. Um, but that would require auxiliary legislation, and it just has never been produced. Although, you know, the Speaker of Parliament has said over the course of the last year, because the law was passed, I think, in April 2017, so it's been around for a while, uh, the Speaker of the House said that he wanted this anti-corruption committee. It just hasn't come to fruition. So what do you do when your uh, request is ignored? Right, there's nobody to... Uh, d- d- to appeal to right which, yeah that's what this body is for and it's not there so although i was told i went to uh, a workshop that i think uh, it was hosted by the lebanese transparency association and a judge from the shura council the state council was speaking there and said if you have this situation if you have a request that's been denied or ignored come to me and i will hear the the case okay i went down there one time tried to call on the telephone couldn't get through i went down there instead couldn't get through, you know, through the front door, even uh, past the reception. So like accessing the state council, even to, you know, submit any sort of uh, appeal to this judge uh, was not possible either. So, you know, what real opportunity you have to get what you're looking for, if it's been denied, um, there, there's no recourse there. Yeah, yeah, and and this week a group uh, did a study. They they announced the results this week about these freedom uh, or sorry the right to access information requests. And so they they basically they sent out requests to 133 state institutions, basically to see what they would get back. And they received responses just from just a quarter of them, from 34 state institutions, and only 19 of them within the deadline in the law. Uh, and so th- this just goes to show. Like, wow, like we're not alone in having issues with this. Uh, State institutions, by and large, are not compliant with the law. 
Right, and the law does other things as well. It requires the institution to publish a, an annual report, which uh, would require a website. And at the municipality level, many many cities do not even have a website. So there are um, capacity issues with the law. The law itself is not fully implementable. Um, people ignore it. Institutions ignore it. And uh, that's maybe because of a lack of understanding of the law, but it also may be intentional. Yeah, I... Because we've both had, had the same experience at, at uh, certain uh, ministries. Yeah, uh, the finance ministry, yeah, right? Yeah. Like, the, you know, they... Like, you were quoted in the Daily Star uh, on this as saying it's a black hole. I totally agree with that as well. Uh, you know, you the, supposedly the finance ministry is supposed to be so, you know, with it and everything and, you know, with the reforms and everything, but they're just on this issue... For whatever reason, like they are just very backwards uh, to the point of it. It seems intentional. It is strange, though, because their website has a ton of data. Yeah. You know, basically what you want to see on there besides the budget. (laughs) But (laughs) but, you know, like if you want to see the fiscal performance numbers, it's on there and stuff like that. So it's a bit strange. But uh, uh, for whatever reason, um, they are not fulfilling it. Um, but there's positive, uh, you know, positive uh, results as well. I've had it from the Lebanese Petroleum Administration, from the Council for Development and Reconstruction. So it's kind yeah. of my experience has been mixed as well. Yeah. Um, speaking of the finance minister, uh, Ali Hassan Khalil, he came out this week and said there's no new taxes in the new budget. Right. So the no, the, the new budget the finance ministry prepares this every year. They send it to the council of ministers or uh, like on the 1st of September or by the 1st of September. And then the council of ministers is supposed to take a look at it. Of course, we don't have one. We don't have a cabinet right now, but once we do, they will take a look at it and then they will pass it on to parliament whose first order of business when they start their October session is to pass this budget. That's how the system is supposed to work. Um, and so there is a budget, like a draft budget that the finance ministry has done, and they've given it to the, the Council of Ministers uh, on time. Uh, and there, there is uh, another step as part of that process, and that is an audit, an audit of the previous year's fiscal performance, let's say. Right. That is a whole nother can. Uh, OK, yeah. let's not let's not <laughs> jump into that. But the audit, let's just say that the audit hasn't been done since 2003 and constitutionally it should be done before the passage of the budget. So, right, right, right. So, and they, they're saying this year it's going to happen. Like, but they, they said that last year as well. So we'll, we'll see what happens with that. Point being, there there is a budget, a draft budget completed uh, from the finance ministry's side. And Khalil came out and said there are no new taxes in it. Um, but we just need a government to uh, move that on to parliament to pass into a law. Right, right, right. And, and, and he specifically came out because uh, Riyad Saleme, the, uh, the the governor of the central bank, was reported as uh, putting out there like a potential like uh, 5,000 lira tax on every 20 liters of gas that's sold in order to pay for a housing loan crisis, which we'll talk about in a minute. Uh, and Khalil came out and said, no, we're not doing that. And there are no new taxes, which I think is interesting because, like, okay, our our finances are are pretty bad, right? State finances, we're, you know, we're like eighty billion dollars in debt, uh, you know, that which m- means the debt to GDP ratio is like one hundred fifty percent or something like that, very very high. And so, if there aren't new taxes, then that means like, well, are are we going to fix our our deficit? Are we going to fix our debt? How are we going to do that? Yeah, that's a great question, how to restructure the public finances. And for us, it's a difficult question to even begin addressing because we don't get to see inside the budget. 
we don't really get clarity on what is being spent and what's coming in. But you know, the the tax on gasoline, that 5,000 lira uh, tax was removed um, sometime in 2015 when the oil prices uh, dived. So it was kind Mm -hmm. of a way to give a break to consumers as well. So the idea of bringing it back is kind of on the initiative of the International Monetary Fund as part of other proposals they've said to shore up uh, the revenue side of public finances. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm curious, though. So this was supposed to plug a hole, according to the report of what Salema was saying, this was supposed to plug a hole in, in financing for uh, for housing loans, right? And, and th- this is the main topic I think that we want to d- dig into. What is going on there? Like what or they're, they're talking about the PCH, right? The Public Corporation for Housing. It's much larger than that, but the PCH is a big chunk of it. So there was subsidies that were offered through other institutions, including the BDL, the Bank, uh, Bank du Liban, the central bank, uh, which was offered to security forces, uh, the Masraf Iskan, the housing bank, which uh, I took advantage of, also offers a subsidized loan at much higher limits. Um, And we'll dive into that a little bit more. But the PCH was a big one, and um, it's quite a big issue, a big problem with the subsidy coming to a halt. It's a big deal because uh, this for, you know, about 5,000 applicants per year was the route to home ownership. So like it's targeted at like lower middle income, first time home buyers, low income households. Um, Really, the limit for the PCH loan is $180,000. And where can you buy a $180,000 apartment in Lebanon? Certainly not in Beirut and, and uh, you know, not in the lower uh, foothills of Jabal Ibnain, of Mount Lebanon. So you really have to get outside of Beirut to take advantage of this PCH loan. So the, the PCH, the Muassasa Iskan, they offer subsidized home loans locally referred to as uh, Iskan loans. And the institution was started in the 1990s. Uh, they gave their first loan in September 1999. And they were able to offer the subsidized loan thanks to the central bank. So what the central bank did was tell commercial banks that they could borrow against their capital reserves, an amount of money that they keep at the central bank for liquidity purposes, uh, technical uh, reasons like that. And uh, the central bank said that they had to offer a special uh, interest rate to home borrowers borrowers uh, of loans to, to purchase homes. Okay, so the BDL was saying like, okay, we're going to subsidize this. We're going to let you banks do like some special things you don't normally get to do. But in return for that, you need to pass on like a very low rate to the, the people who are actually taking out the loans. That's right. The B- okay. BDL said you can use this money to finance the loans. The The interest rate has to be pegged at a certain percentage, around 3 5 4% in there. And the PCH itself would pay the subsidy between the market rate of the loan, market interest rate, and what BDL said was the peg, what the, the subsidized rate would be. Later in the 2000s, uh, the central bank started in, uh, issuing stimulus packages, and part of that was to extend very low interest rates to uh, commercial banks, around 1%, for, uh, 
for um, housing related ac- related activities. That's the the home buyer's loan. It was also for loans to developers, uh, green buildings. Um, they did other things like renewable energy loans, so, stuff like that. And at the end of this year, BDL decided, no, we're done. We're going to change the mechanism. We're no longer going to allow commercial banks to borrow against their capital reserves. And um, the stimulus package, we think, will continue, although there hasn't been an announcement yet. But at this point, we we can say that the subsidized loan is kind of at a standstill. It's a, It's been halted. Right. So what does this mean, though, for, for people? Does this mean that... We need a, a solution from the politicians, or is there some way that uh, the the PCH can, I don't know, do, do something on its own? Right. So typically, this is not a monetary policy role for a central bank to offer this sort of subsidized scheme for home buyers. This is a fiscal policy role, and it should be the responsibility of the state, meaning parliament uh, and the government. There are solutions on the table. They're a bit kind of uh, hazy still. We don't know what is being offered. But to continue uh, or to revive or restart the subsidy would require something such as the budget uh, to include funds for the PCH to pay uh, the difference between the interest rates and to also allow somehow the commercial banks to finance the amount needed for these loans. So on average, PCH was offering 5,000 loans per year, applicants per year were applying to take these loans. And that was about one third of what the total subsidized amount was. Remember, it it includes the bank, the Masraf Scan, the housing bank. The BDL had the, the subsidy as well for security forces. So PCH was taking, uh, offering these loans to one-third the value of the total. So that was about $700 million, uh, and that equates to about $2 billion annually in subsidized loans across these different programs. By quantity, this was about 50%. So PCH was servicing about 50% of the total applicants, but by value, only about 33%. So what happened this year was that, or at the end of 2017, BDL said, okay, we're going to stop. We're going to allow $500 million more from 2019's assumed, there's Mm. a a 2019 stimulus package. um, And that money has been exhausted. So that's the halt of the situation. It's not so much that there's been a stoppage. There's just been an exhaustion of the available money. So if you're a young couple planning to get married and... A lot of times that means you're waiting to buy a house here. Yes. And you you research everything and you say, oh, the PCH, uh, that's the way to go for me, uh, for for me and my spouse. You you're you're just what you like. You try to apply and they're just not accepting applicants right now. Or that's correct. That, your okay. your life essentially is on hold if that's how uh, you are, are progressing with your with a home uh, purchase to get married, start a family, you know, start to build wealth because that's a social issue. You know, your your life is essentially on hold. So far this year, PCH has only um, serviced around eighteen hundred loans, and there's another five hundred loans in limbo. So that $500 million has been exhausted. 1,800 applicants were able to uh, go through the PCH to get their loan. 500 are in limbo. But uh, when you look at the numbers, it's kind of this is where 
We hear allegations, if you recall, a couple weeks ago, the Maati family was in the news um, for you know, accessing subsidized loans that uh, arguably um, they may not have needed. So this is kind of the indication of what's happened. You know, kind of dicing up the numbers, if the average PCH, uh, if the average loan amount per year number-wise was 5000 and the the need is about $700 million, the $500 million that BDL offered this year still wouldn't have, wouldn't have been enough for all PCH demand, but it, it seems that a chunk of this money was eaten up by these other subsidization programs. And there's also kind of an indication or at least question of whether the salary inc- increase for public sector workers last year allowed an additional amount of individuals to qualify for subsidized loans. So that's really where this situation lies now. If you want to get a loan subsidized, you can't. It's not there. If you want to take a loan, you still can from a commercial bank, but you're going to pay 10% interest and you're not going to get some of the kind of benefits that a PCH loan offered, which was like free registration, things like this. So this this has like the -the on-the-ground effects for like people trying to start other lives, uh, trying to get a housing loan and everything. But it also has like, I mean, we're talking about lots and lots of money here. It, it has like a really big effect just on the market itself, right? Yeah, it's being described, this part uh, of the subsidy being exhausted and, and kind of in limbo as the knockout punch for the real estate market. Oof. The real estate market, you know, like for several years now has not been performing very well. You walk around Beirut at night and downtown and, and some parts of Beirut that have these sky rise buildings, really luxurious buildings, and, and none of them have lights on. So uh, I've, we, I've always wanted to like do a study or read a study about like just how many apartments, like luxury apartments in Lebanon, are unsold because we have an idea. Yeah, it's the like, idea you know, is like three to four billion dollars right, worth. Right, right, and that's just in Beirut. Right, and you know you go down to central Beirut and you still see people building. You still see cranes out there. So, you know, talk about a crisis and these words are being used, crisis and market correction. We'll talk about that in a little bit. But developers are are still trying to build and are trying to sell their stock that they have on the market. This is at the luxury segment. Why is there such a glut uh, of these types of units? Why, why is nobody buying million dollar apartments in Beirut? <laughs> You know, the the regional situation, uh, I think you guys have talked about this many times on, on the podcast already, but the, the war next door, the regional economy uh, is um, depressed. Oil prices for those countries uh, in the Gulf that are oil producing um, is down. Um, so there's no appetite from that sense. And then you step a bit maybe lower um, in the market to like, let's say the $300,000 to $700,000 range um, where a lot of Lebanese expats were buying. Uh, and there's no movement there either. And that, well, I again... Mean, part, of, part of this as well is you just have this history, right, where things were really booming in Lebanon, like up until about 2010, 2011. And developers, like up until that point... They were making all these plans and building these gigantic houses, these luxury houses, because that's where the money was then. But then they had all these projects in the pipeline, right? And they just kept building them. 
And so now we have this huge overhang from that and this huge stock of just unsold gigantic apartments that people aren't like people don't have the money to buy anymore or if they do have the money they're not interested in buying them here because of the regional situation that you're talking about and really like the market has shifted so much more towards like smaller right like two bedroom apartments something more manageable and more realistic for like your average Lebanese family right true in 2010, you know, the sky literally was the limit. There was no end to the boom. And the boom was, you know, we spoke about this earlier, was in large effect due to the financial crisis in the U.S. and the mortgage crisis there. And real estate in Lebanon has always been generally a, a good investment. Now is a very good time to buy. Uh, you, you might uh, encounter or you might say that we are at the bottom of the cycle and you know are we though well correction question is coming up and we'll we'll try and and, and talk about that in a minute but to revive the market everybody is in a kind of wait and see mode and again it's tied to the regional situation it's tied to the government formation it's tied to parliament uh, legislating and for most I want to say most Lebanese, but for a lot of Lebanese buying in Beirut, they've been priced out of the market of Beirut. They're, you know, they need the subsidy to purchase an apartment, and they're not going to be able to purchase uh, so much in Beirut because real estate here is quite dear. You know, you have all these uh, buildings that are, even if they are getting down to 90 square meters and are studio size apartments or one or two bedroom apartments, they're still quite expensive. But are, are we at the bottom of a cycle? That's the question that, uh, and is it a crisis? And um, is it a, a crisis for whom? And um, <laughs> is a correction nearing? These are the questions that uh, we're starting to encounter, but I don't think are quite answerable yet. I do think that uh, um, if the situation persists, it could be in very, very big trouble. But uh, today, uh, it's still a wait and see. So th there's two points I'd like to make really quick. One is that there, there already has been a correction, right? Uh, mm -hmm. it, especially at the high end of the market. You, you don't see it in listings, in property listings, which have only fallen, you know, a couple of percent uh, over the last couple of years. But you, you talk to people in real estate and they're like, oh, no, things are down, you know, 20 to 30 percent, something along those lines, which, which makes up a, uh, a very interesting dynamic, because if you are somebody who really knows the real estate market, then you can get a very perhaps even a steeper discount than that, because you're just able to uh, you're you're coming from a more knowledgeable uh, base and, and a better negotiating position. And then there's the second real estate market where if you're not very much in the know, maybe you're not going to get as big of a discount. And so you have this weird thing, as a couple of people described it to me, as like these two parallel real estate markets for people in the know and people outside the know. But certainly there has already been quite a bit of a correction overall. You know, I'd agree. And I think developers now are willing to sell at cost, which is that 20, you know, 25 percent discount. Um, but going further and, and selling at a loss, uh, unless you find as a very sophisticated buyer, as, uh, as you say, somebody in the know in the real estate market, unless you find a situation where you find somebody who's quite distressed that cannot pay their bills, has no cash coming in, and really needs to sell, and probably you're paying in cash, then you can get a super deal. Which there's a question as to, well, 
actually there are some of those people. And the question is, how many of them are there? How many developers are there out there in this position? How many distressed properties? Yeah. How many distressed loans are out yeah. uh, to the bank? Uh, and this we don't know. This right? is something like, this that is, is very box. intriguing, very yeah. intriguing. And it may be a reason, partly, why the central bank said, all right, we're, we're you know kind of exiting this uh, subsidy mechanism. Um, which I think also is a, because of the currency uh, concern and um, changes to foreign markets, a lot of external factors happening. Um, but it may be a reason why BDL said, okay, hold on, like the state needs to take over here. Right, right. So, right. how many developers, how many businesses uh, up and down the value chain, how many people are in a precarious situation and cannot pay? back what they owe we don't know yet so that's the big question that's really where i think the question of are we truly in a crisis or are we approaching a crisis needs to find some sort of answer there right right uh, i i would agree with that R really quickly just my second point on that as well is that there's an argument for a correction and for a massive, a fairly massive one as well. Uh, I know we've been speak, speaking mo mostly about residential real estate, mm -hmm. but if we go to the commercial side really quickly, right? Right now, if you get a commercial space, a lot of times, uh, we see this all the time on the street, right? Like if, if, if you and I wanted to like open up a new coffee shop, right? Probably we're going to end up paying rent that isn't really, it's too high for what the market can bear. And what that means is that we're going to be selling each cup of coffee for a little bit too high uh, for, of what the market could bear. And that means we're going to go out of business in like six months, right? And we yeah. see this all over the place, places, you know, popping up and then having to shut down. And some people say one of the causes of that is like you just need a, you need real estate. You need a correction in the real estate market. Yeah, I would say that, you know, real estate prices are too high for retail ventures, for commercial spaces. But there's also the knockoff effect of the poor economy for, you know, five, six, seven years now where people are if if they still are working, uh, their their wages have not increased. The footfall isn't there. Tourism, you know, isn't quite, uh, although it, it's come back, but not like the high purchasing power of the golf tourist has come back. So like you look at, you walk downtown, like there's a lot of uh, empty uh, retail spaces and um, there's a lot of competition, you know, go to all the different malls. Now there's a mall in Verdun, there's one downtown, right, there's one yeah. now that in Chouifet and Hazmi. So you know, there's so much competition and there are not enough consumers with the means potentially. So that's an effect. But again, even as a business, it's a great time to buy if you have the liquidity and the cash. So there definitely is like an argument for, OK, there is already a correction and maybe there should be even more of one uh, as well in the future. Um, but then going back to what you said about like what we don't know in the banking sector, that's really worrying, right? Because there's all of these whispers that like, oh, you know, there's the number of uh, loans, housing loans that, are, you know, maybe should be considered delinquent uh, isn't really being reported that maybe some banks have been playing around with the accounting to make it seem as though their balance sheet is stronger than it really is. We don't know about this, right? Uh, right. It's just like these weird whispers that you hear around town. But that's the really worrying thing about this, right? Because if there is like a real correction and if people really have to grapple with 
with uh, the fall in real estate, then if there are these problems out there, then they could come into the limelight and there could be a, a much larger issue, right? The banks are another black hole, right? So uh, getting data out of the banks and asking them, and even because you are posing the question, the perception may be there uh, that there is delinquency when there in reality may not be. So they're not so keen on answering these questions. Um, but the correction question is where do you see the correction? If it's on the side of land, you know, open plots, something that you want to build on. These owners are land wealthy and have maybe not the incentive right now to sell that land at a steep discount. Because first of all, who are they going to sell it to? Uh, and second of all, they may not have the cash flow issues that the developers or the home buyers have. So yeah. they want to sit on their wealth and wait for a time that uh, is conducive to them. There's a long history of people just sitting on their properties and not doing anything with it. True. In London. True. Yeah. 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 And look at all the great wealths. When when uh, during the Civil War there there was a lot of land purchasing at low prices and who built their wealth then, Ben? Who who made major moves in real estate in Lebanon and built... As you informed me prior to the podcast, it was Rafiq Al-Hurri. Okay, so now if there is a correction, you know, and now uh, if we do see major moves, maybe we see uh, uh, a generation down the road, the next uh, wealthy class or a political class uh, that had purchased during this time. So who may, maybe there's a new hurry in the making. Potentially, yeah, yeah. Oof, well, that's fun. <laughs> So, yeah, so very exciting. Um, well, that's all we have for today. Uh, thanks so much, Jeremy. It was a pleasure having you on the podcast. Thank I you. hope you come back sometime in the future. I would love to come back. It's very <laughs> exciting, and it's not too cramped or hot in this apartment for me to return. I would love to. All right. All right. Uh, I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Jeremy Arbides. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. The Lebanese Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar El-Fil.